We are going to continue our exposition of Matthew, Matthew's gospel. We'll pick it up in chapter 21 this morning. Throughout the course of Israel's history, there have been times of great distress, times of war, persecution, enslavement, and captivity. And with each occurrence of captivity and bondage, there's also been God's promise of deliverance. After 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God sent a deliverer to free them and lead them to the promised land. And we know that that deliverer at that time was a man named Moses. Of course, Moses himself told the people there was a future deliverer coming, a prophet who would come to them from the Lord. And so we know that we're always waiting for a deliverer. Fast forward eight centuries to the time of the Babylonian exile and For 70 years, Israel was in captivity to the Babylonians, and they were praying again for deliverance. And yet, the prophet Daniel received visions from the Lord, visions of restoration and return to Israel. But soon it became clear that God intended to free the Israelites from bondage and bring them back to the land of Israel, and even to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In Daniel 9.25, this is very interesting, Daniel 9.25, the Lord promises even more than land and the temple. Just reading to you, Daniel 9.25, he foretells, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. And so this interesting verse, Daniel prophesies of the rebuilding of the temple and of the coming of Messiah, the prince. And he gives something of a time stamp in his prophecy. Literally, the Hebrew reads this. He doesn't, in, in our English, we read uh, seven weeks, 62 weeks, but literally in the Hebrew, it's seven sevens and 62 sevens. Many Bible scholars believe that Daniel is sort of painting this timeline, not of days or literal weeks, but actually of years. The prophecy refers to years. So seven sevens and 62 sevens, well, how many years is that? So follow the math here. I know all of you got good grades in math, I'm sure. Seven sevens is 49. 62 sevens is 434. So altogether, we're talking about a prophecy referring to 483 years. But the question is, what does that refer to? Well, after the Babylonians fell to the Persians, the Persians inherited all the Jews that were in captivity. And yet the Lord moves in the heart of the king. And according to Nehemiah chapter 2, the Persian king, a man named Artaxerxes, gives a decree for the Jews to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and then move back into it. This is the work of God to put this into the heart of a pagan king. And he issues this decree. Now, the city doesn't get built at this time, but the decree is issued, we know this from history, on March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, Daniel 9.25 specifically notes this event, saying the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that's the first time stamp. And then from that event, Daniel adds 69 weeks, or 69 sevens, or 483 years. And so the question is, what happens 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree? Jesus rides in 
to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, almost to the day. Turn over to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at this event today. Now, there's a, an old English scholar named Robert Anderson who did all the math and calculations, and he's actually able to pin it down to a specific day. Uh, some Bible scholars sort of argue about the exact dating and timing because the, a year nowadays is different than a year back then, but we basically have on the exact same year this event. It's really remarkable. If you study out biblical history, it's a remarkable series of events. But the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem on the week of Passover was the beginning, the start of a, a world-changing event in history. It would be this week that Jesus would be persecuted, arrested, tried, sentenced, and crucified, and then resurrected the third day. There's a lot that happens in this week, and when we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew over the coming months and even beyond that, we're going to see that this week, which really takes place from Matthew 21 all the way through to Matthew 26, partly into 27, but this specific week is a remarkable uh, week of full of events and discourse and discussions and teachings and arguments and all kinds of things. The Last Supper happens during this week. Uh, the crucifixion happens on this week. He's delivered over to death. All these things happen on Passion Week here. A remarkable time, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it. But all of this begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken to the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he'd entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. In Galilee. And so Matthew 21 finds Jesus and the disciples finally arriving in Jerusalem after several months. And if you've been with us for a while through the course of this, uh, uh, this exposition, we've seen even for us for months and months and months, we've been talking about the events leading up to this specific point. And back in chapter 16, they ventured to the district of Caesarea Philippi after which time they told, Jesus told them in uh, chapter 16, verse 21, that he would eventually go down to Jerusalem or he would be killed and then rise the third day. He predicted this months and months ahead of time. By chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus departs from the northern region of Israel uh, in Galilee and he heads to Judea in the south. By chapter 20, verse 29, he's arrived in the city of Jericho. And it's from Jericho that Jesus is going to make the 17-mile journey on foot 
across a rugged terrain and finally arrive on the outskirts of the holy city. And so in verse 1 of this passage here, they arrive in the small town of Bethphage, and then Mark, the gospel writer, he adds not only Bethphage, but also the town of Bethany. So these two towns were next to each other. They were both towns on the outskirts of the city. They were sort of suburban sprawls, if you would, outside the major capital city of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about the town of Bethphage, but we do know about the town of Bethany. And Bethany was the home of Jesus' friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And Jesus would have spent a lot of time in that town as he traveled. John chapter 12 records that Jesus arrives in Bethany and presumably Bethphage six days before the Passover. According to William Hendrickson, that puts Jesus in Bethany on Friday night before the sunset, and after which follows the Sabbath, and they would have had a special dinner for Jesus on that evening, and then the next morning he would have traveled into Jerusalem on Sunday. Now, there's been a lot of uh, biblical scholars uh, who've debated about the actual dating of Palm Sunday, would it possibly have been a Monday because there's evidence this way and evidence that way? And I really wrestled with how much of that to get into this morning and uh, basically determined that I don't know if I know enough about all the arguments uh, to really land anywhere because traditionally we've always held that Palm Sunday is Palm Sunday. And so I, I don't think it affects too much of our exposition. The bottom line is that we know that Jesus came into the city at the beginning of the week, whether it was Palm Sunday or potentially Monday when they would have brought in the, the sacrificial lambs. Uh, and it doesn't throw off the chronology of the week at all. So uh, if you have read any scholarship about that, it's certainly possible. I know that scholars like uh, William Varner, John MacArthur hold to that view. Um, but again, the traditional view is that they came in on Palm Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. But regardless here, we're moving along here. From Bethphage, they're very close to the Mount of Olives, which is on the opposite side from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. So they would have arrived in these towns, looked across the valley, and seen the city about a mile off in this distance. They would have been able to, to look across and see the ornate buildings, and they would have seen the Temple Mount from a little less than a mile away. And it's from that spot that Jesus sends two of his disciples to go and accomplish a task. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus tells these two disciples who we don't know who they are, but they just says that there's two of them. He says, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And so very simply, they go into the city, and they're to locate a donkey that's tied up along with a, a young baby, a, a foal, a, a young colt that's along with this older donkey. And when they see these two animals tied up, their instructions are to literally walk over, untie the animals, and start walking out of the city. Now at first, this is a little bit strange of an instruction. I want you to go to the city and just uh, take a, a donkey and its baby and just come back to me. Um, we read this and we go, oh, that sounds normal. That's not really normal to go and steal animals from the city. <laughs> but Jesus tells them to do this. And it, again, it seems odd, but he says in verse 3 here, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And he says immediately, 
he, referring to the one who owns the animal, will send them. Now, at this point, we don't know if Jesus is working providentially here, if he knows this is going to happen a certain way and sort of through providence has orchestrated it. We also don't know if possibly Jesus had already arranged this to happen. Maybe he had already gone into the city at a different date, met a man who has this donkey and said, okay, I'm going to send my disciples to you. And when they arrive, they'll tell you it's for me and you can send it off. We don't know the details of all of that. But what we do know is that there were explicit instructions that he wants the disciples to follow. Now, why is this detail included? Well, as we're going to see, it becomes vitally important to the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, Matthew doesn't record in the text which prophecy this is referring to, but we know from looking at our Bibles where this prophecy comes from. It's actually a melding of two specific passages. The first part of the verse actually comes to us from Isaiah 62, which is a prophecy regarding Israel's restoration. And I'll just read this to you. In in Isaiah 62, verses 10 through 12, this is what we read from the prophet Isaiah. He says, Go through, go through the gates, clear the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, lift up the standard over the people. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, that's the quoted phrase right there, say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought out as city not forgotten. Now, again, Matthew only records this one short phrase uh, in the text here, but it's meant to signify the greater truth here, the whole passage, that salvation is coming to Israel. And anyone in that time who would have known their Bible would have heard that first part of the phrase, say to the daughter of Zion, they want to go, oh, I know that passage. And in their minds, they would have gone to this salvation passage, okay? But there's more to the fulfillment here, because how exactly does salvation come to Israel? Like, literally, how does it arrive in Israel? Well, that is answered by the rest of the prophecy. And so I want to encourage you, go over to Zechariah chapter 9, go back in your Bible, actually two more books. So you're going to go back into the Old Testament to Malachi. The one before Malachi is Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. Now, the prophet Zechariah, he's he's ministering at the time of Israel's restoration after the captivity. So this is right around uh, 600 B.C., moving into 500 B.C., so about 500 or so B.C. Much of the prophecy includes encouragements regarding the coming of the Messiah. And part of this encouragement was meant to motivate the people to go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So he's giving these prophecies, telling them that the Lord is going to come again, so we want to make sure that we're ready when he does come. So this is a a motivation for Israel to go and be obedient to the Lord, to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, and wait for the Lord to return. And so, not only does Zechariah prophesy a future for the city, but also prophesies the return of Israel's king to the city. And so we read in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Now, I'm dropping us in the middle of a a passage here, but just these two verses are, are pertinent to the discussion today. 
Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, many scholars have noted that the fulfillment of verse 10 comes at the second return of Christ, even though we do see hints of this in the first advent of Jesus, but certainly verse 9 applies specifically to the coming of Jesus at this time in Jerusalem. It's actually quite remarkable. But woven into this prophecy are several details. First, we see it's a prophecy regarding Israel's king. And even from the time of Zechariah until the time of Jesus, this would have been regarded as a messianic prophecy. Whenever the Jews read this portion of scripture, they knew this was referring to the coming Messiah one day. And the text says here that he, talking about the Lord, is just and endowed with salvation. This is very similar in theme to Isaiah 62, the verse we read about there, again, pertaining to the salvation of Israel. But the, it also says here that this king, this coming king, is seen as humble. He's a humble king. He's not a prideful king riding an elegant horse, flaunting his influence as he rides into the city with procession before and behind. This king is humble. He's gentle. Last week, we see the very specific detail. This king comes into the city. He's just and endowed with salvation. He's gentle. He's humble. And then to demonstrate his humility, it says here, he's mounted on a, a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, the details are very specific here, which is why I believe Jesus is so explicit with his instructions to the disciples. Go back to Matthew 21. Again, this is... Fascinating stuff here. They receive their instructions that go into the city. Verses 6 and 7, it says, The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Now, Mark records something additional here that Matthew does not. He notes in Mark 11, verses 4 to 6, that when the disciples go into the city... Someone actually does confront them. Someone asks them the question as they're untying the two animals, and they say, what are you doing untying this colt, just as Jesus predicted? To which they utter the password phrase, the Lord is in need of them. And as soon as they say that, the person gives permission for them to go. Again, we don't know if this is providential. We don't know if this this donkey owner received some kind of a vision from God or if Jesus had come to him a day or two before and talked to him, we don't know. All we know is that they go to get the animals, the person who owns them gives permission, and they lead them away. They bring the donkey and the colt to Jesus and the disciples. They lay their own coats on the top of the animals, and then Jesus mounts up on the animals. Now, some have gone as far to say that that because of the text, the, the, the donkey and the colt, that somehow Jesus had been riding on both animals. And I even remember seeing a movie one time, an old Jesus movie, where they had him kind of sitting on both animals at the same time. And 
It's pretty nonsensical, frankly. That's not what the Bible is referring to as Jesus being on both animals. The point is that both are together with them. It's very clear from Mark eleven seven that Jesus is specifically riding on the colt, on the baby. Well, why the young colt and not the donkey? Well, Mark tells us that the colt was one on which no one had ever sat. Jesus was the very first rider on this young animal. And I was even reading commentators that were talking about their amusing, waxing intellectual about, well, why the two? Why would you bring the mother and the colt? Well, I mean, very practically, the colt would do much better riding through the city if mom was with him. So why not have that happen? Again, we don't know the mysteries of God and his plan, but we know that both animals are the ones that are going in. But Jesus is on the colt. And so in this way, this colt, who had never had a rider before, was set apart for Jesus alone and no one before him. This is a very unique thing. It was a very special thing. And so then Jesus and the disciples, they make this short trek from the city, or excuse me, to the city limits, and they prepare to enter the city. And as they enter, verse 8 says, Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And so why were people spreading their coats on the ground? Well, frankly, they're rolling out the makeshift red carpet. That's what they're doing. They're, they're creating a path in the city because there's thousands of people everywhere. But they're putting down all these coats and all these branches and they're creating a path. It's like a, a royal carpet going from one end of the city to the other. This is, this is a special path. It's a distinct path. And again, by placing their coats on this path in front of Jesus, they're expressing their devotion and their submission to him as king. Mark and John, the gospel writers, they add even more details to this. The crowd also cuts down palm branches, why we call this Palm Sunday. They cut down palm branches and they begin to lay those palm branches down as well. This would have been a remarkable sight to behold. Thousands of people just laying down coats and branches and just creating this pathway that's going and laying down in front of Jesus as he's marching through the city. And how many people are doing this? Well, the normal population of Jerusalem at this time would have been about 70,000 people. But during Passover, and really during any festival, the city, the population would have ballooned, and some have said up to 250,000 people in the city, and I've read estimates as high as 2 million people in the city. But the point being, this is a lot of people. This isn't a small little hamlet town here. There's a lot of people in the city, a lot of commotion, a lot of things are happening. And verse 9 notes that the crowds were going ahead of him, which means that there are crowds that were already in the city, kind of descending onto this event. And there were also crowds that followed him. Those are the people that have been following him since Jericho. We saw the crowds that were following him up to that point. So crowds behind him, crowds in front of him, all descending onto one place, the arrival of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. And so again, we're talking about thousands of people packed into the city in celebration of the Passover. And when they hear that Jesus of Nazareth has arrived and he's riding into Jerusalem, on the back of a donkey, they would have known their Bibles. They would have known the prophecy. Their messianic expectations would have been at a fever pitch because they're already excited. It's like 
you know, when you have a, a holiday and, and there's already a lot of excitement around the holiday and then something sort of magical happens. And we say magical in sort of a, uh, just a very generic sense here. But they're already expecting this arrival of Messiah. They're already expecting a hope for the future. And then as soon as Jesus rides in, they get really excited. So a large crowd of people, thousands of people in front and behind flocking to the gate to see his arrival. And as soon as they behold him, they all begin shouting this phrase, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, much of this chant would have come from Psalm 118, and they would have been singing that the entire time. They would have been singing this in their meals, right around the celebration. They would have even sung this as they themselves were traveling to the city. Psalm 118 is a triumphant psalm of victory and salvation. And really, it culminates with this glorious uh, declaration here. Psalm 118, 24, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. We looked at that passage last week, and that's what they would have had in their minds as they were celebrating this festival. And that psalm is loaded with messianic expectation. And they say this word, Hosanna. Hosanna simply means save now, save now. And they're cheering, save now, save now. And as Jesus is riding in, they're calling him the son of David. Again, another messianic title. But this would have been exciting. Well, why? Remember in your minds here that Israel is under Roman occupation. The Romans are in charge. They can't even govern their own city the way that they want to. They can't even govern their own nation. They're under Roman occupation. They lack freedom. And frankly, since the time of the Babylonians, nearly six centuries before, they had been overtaken by four major empires. And in some cases, in the northern part, they've been beholding to five. First, it was the Assyrians in the north and the Babylonians and the Persians, and the Greeks, and now the Romans. So they haven't had freedom in centuries. And now they know that Messiah is come. He's been preaching the word of God throughout the whole Israel for three years. He's performing signs and miracles and wonders. He's been healing people. He's been raising the dead. They also know that his family lineage is that of King David. Now he's riding into the holy city at Passover on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Surely he's got to be the one. Now, Israel had had many false messiahs up to that point, several dozen, but now everything is lining up and it's pointing to Jesus. And so they're excited and they're, sh they're shouting and chanting, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Yes, Jesus is the expected one. 
Yes, he is the coming one. He is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. He is the prophesied Messiah. And what has he come to do? Here's the thing, though. The crowds, they were waiting for a deliverer who's going to overthrow the Romans and establish Israel as a superpower on earth. They were waiting for physical salvation. They were hoping for national blessing. They were, they were desiring a warrior king. They were expecting Jesus to ride in on the back of a donkey and then seize the city and overthrow all of Israel's enemies and set up dominance. In fact, that's what uh, the, the Maccabean Revolution was about 200 years before that. And one of the sons of the Maccabees rode into the city 200 years before, he had rode it on the back of a donkey, and he tried to overtake by force, and he was eventually dispatched with. That didn't come to fruition. But now, they're waiting for this warrior king, this dominant ruler. But here's the thing, that wasn't his plan, at least not at that time. Jesus didn't ride into the city on a war horse, prepared to attack Israel's enemies. He came in on a donkey, a beast of burden. And typically a beast of burden would be ridden in times of peace, not in a prelude to war. But that's who Jesus is. He is called the Prince of Peace. More than that, he is gentle and humble and lowly. And yes, he came to save his people, but not from slavery to world empires, but from slavery to their own sin. But the crowd they're shouting for a salvation they didn't know they needed from a, sal a Savior that they would sh shortly discard. Within a week, he's going to be on a cross. But they couldn't see that just yet. As for now, they're cheering and they're excited. They're giving praise to the Messiah who had arrived to accomplish salvation. And for this time, at this point, at the beginning of the week, there is much to be excited about in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from, Naz from Nazareth in Galilee. And so the arrival of Jesus made no small spectacle. Even beyond the crowds that had met him at the gate, even the rest of the people who were in the city, there was a buzz. There was a buzz in in the, the alleys, there was a buzz in every house, there was a buzz in the, in the center of the city at the temple, there was a buzz with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, everybody was talking about who is this man who is coming into the city on the back of a donkey. The whole city was stirred. Whereas earlier, he had been warning people against professing him to be the Messiah. Remember that? Every time he would perform a miracle and they would go to tell all their friends and he said, don't tell anyone that I've done this. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone of what you've seen and heard here. But now the truth is out. Now Messiah is here and there's no turning back. And so when the question of his identity is asked, what do they say? Verse 11, they say, this is the prophet Jesus. Not a prophet, the prophet. The one who has come. This is Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Again, he's called the prophet Jesus. A prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. And Jesus, even his name, means Jehovah is salvation. 
And just in case that he could be confused with any other Yeshua in Israel at the time, he is specifically Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. Very specific. There's no mistaking who this person is in their eyes. And so he has come to bring salvation. Now, it's interesting because Luke records something at the end of this whole thing that Matthew does not record. Because the disciples, along with the rest of the crowd, they have been proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. But when the Pharisees, they hear of it, they become offended. And so Luke 19, verses 39 and 40, records this. Some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. In other words, they're calling you Messiah. Stop them. How does he respond? He answers and says to them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. How's that for an answer? In other words, you can't stop it now. Even if you stop them, even the creation itself will rise up and call for Messiah and call me Messiah. Because here's the thing, the king of Israel has finally come to his people and salvation has come with him. And there's no stopping it at this point. The wheels are already in motion. He's now in the city. He's going to go one week preaching and teaching in the streets and in the temple. He's going to be opposed by religious leaders. And eventually he will come to an end in that week. Of course, we know he resurrects on the third day. But what is the significance of the arrival of Jesus? Why did Jesus come into earth? Well, his arrival marks the, the beginning of this week. It's interesting that on Sunday, the crowds are cheering for salvation. But by Friday, the crowds are shouting and chanting for crucifixion. This would be the most important week in human history. He would save, but not in the way they were expecting. He would be victorious, but not by fighting. He'd be victorious by dying and rising again. See, here's the thing. All of us are enemies of God by nature. And we're at war with God because of our sin. All of us have sins. But God has sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born truly God and yet truly man, to come into the world to, for the express purpose of accomplishing salvation. And Jesus, he, he goes to the cross and He gives His life, His perfect spotless life, the just for the unjust. Remember, he is just and endowed with salvation, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he dies on this cross and he bears our sin and our shame. And as he dies, he, he satisfies and stops the wrath of God that's meant for us. And in this way, he wins the victory over sin and death. But he does, he does not stay on the ground. He rises again the third day. And as he rises, he declares victory to all who would trust in him. And again, how do we receive that salvation? Well, we receive it, the Bible says, by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. By looking on Christ, recognizing our own sinful condition, and turning away, and confessing our sins before the Lord, and asking for forgiveness and asking for salvation and in doing so you're putting your faith in him you're trusting in him 
And so what is it that makes a Christian? Is a Christian a person who comes to church? Is a Christian a person who lives perfectly? Is a Christian a person who memorizes all the Bible verses and say all the prayers? Well, certainly that is part of the stuff of Christianity. But what makes a Christian is this, that you recognize that you have sinned against God and are in need of forgiveness. And yet by faith, you have received the salvation of our God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That this salvation has been offered freely to us as a gift, a wonderful, precious gift that we receive by faith. Friends, you cannot do anything to earn this salvation. You can't buy it, you can't work for it, you can't be good enough for it. You receive it by faith alone. And so our victory is not one that we win. Our victory has been won for us by our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself just and endowed with salvation. And when he came into that city on that day, he came proclaiming the day of the Lord which is a remarkable thing, fulfilled in part in that last week, but it will have its final completion in the days to come when he returns. Let our hearts be full and trusting in him now and even on that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for your mighty word that we get to look into your word and we get to see prophecy fulfilled We see something that they couldn't see at that time. We have the benefit of looking back through history and seeing the the woven thread of salvation through that time. And we marvel, Lord, at your providence, at your sovereignty, that you are a God that's worthy of praise and worthy of adoration. And Lord, we thank you for salvation, that our salvation is not something that we're good enough for. It's not something we earn It's not something we deserve. And yet you, by your mercy and by your grace, you descend and you meet us where we are. Lord Jesus, you came to this earth as a man wrapped in human flesh. You rode into that city on the back of a a donkey, a beast of burden, lowly and gentle and humble. And the Bible says that you look on us as sad and as lowly as we are, And yet, a bruised reed you will not break. A smoking flax, a candle wick you won't extinguish. You don't blow us over. You don't beat us up. You call us to come to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will give us rest. And you tell us, Lord, take your yoke upon ourselves and trust in you, and we will find rest for our souls. And Lord, I pray for that kind of rest for us. Lord, for Christians, for believers who are hearing me, I pray that we would encourage our hearts to know that we can still, after all these years, put our trust in you, that you carry us, Lord. And for those who don't yet know you, who haven't ever trusted in you before, I pray that they would see that they can stop striving and fighting and living for themselves and put their trust in you, that you are worthy of their trust, and worthy of their praise. Lord, that many would come to salvation even today. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing gift of love given to us in Jesus Christ. 
We praise you and we thank you in his name. Amen.